Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. I've got a bit of a cold. I often sound like I've got a cold anyway, but now I really do have a cold. I think it might be post-Glasto cold, actually. Oh, it's still part of this come down we were talking about last week. Yeah, afraid so. Do you ever rub um, Vicks Vaporub into your hairy chest? I'm summoning up quite an erotic image there. You should. Oh, for goodness sake, let's move on. I was going to say something that happened. It's a little bit kids say the darndest things. Yeah. Good use of the word darndest, by the way. Thank you. You're slightly American. To continue with the Americanisms, um, I I was in a big shopping mall the other day. The shopping centre is better, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mall never quite feels right in my mouth. Well, mall is an American, isn't it? Precinct, I'm fine with arcade shopping. I was in a big precinct. That's interesting. Yeah, I think precinct has sort of slightly faded out, hasn't it? Let's bring it back. Could be a cheerful campaign. Shopping precinct. Yeah, but I yeah. think precinct is an area, not a centre. Maybe is it whether it's covered? Is that what makes the difference? Oh, you've obviously thought mm. about this more than me. Mm. Have you got a hotline for a town planner? I'm sure. So I, th- I think on reflection, I was probably in a shopping centre. Yeah, uh, with Gene the other day, and all of a sudden I hear him go, Dad. So spin around, he goes, look, it's a summer sale. And I looked, and it wasn't a summer sale. It was actually the Ann Summers sale. <laughs> How did you say? I said, sure. And we went in. I got him a lovely French maid costume. That is very funny. Now, you sent around a news article this week. About pickleball? Yes, which I have, uh, have in front of me. The headline is, Shattered Nerves, Sleepless Nights. Pickleball noise is driving everyone nuts. I know, it's interesting, isn't it? This is in the New York Times. It says the sound has brought on a nationwide scourge of frayed nerves and unneighbourly clashes. These in turn have elicited petitions and calls to the police, last-ditch lawsuits aimed at local parks, private clubs and homeowners associations that rush to open courts during the sport's 
recent boom. So pickleball's taken a, an ugly turn. Are you sort of slightly worried that pickleball might end up on a downward trend before we've even played it? it should have been. <laughs> Do you think it says something about the modern age that even something as seemingly innocuous as pickleball Probably, can become yeah. a divisive issue? Culture wars. The pickleball yeah. culture wars. The article continues. For answers, many have turned to Bob Unetic, a retired engineer and avid pickleball player who became one of the foremost authorities on muffling the game after starting a consulting firm called Pickleball Sound Mitigation. He said that pickleball wax from 100 feet away could reach 70 decibels, similar to some vacuum cleaners, whilst everyday <laughs> background noise typically drops off at a somewhat annoying 55. I and mean, when we did our pickleball episode, was this in the, in the wings or not so much? I don't think so. I mean, we, we, what we like to do is give a platform to ideas. We don't like to be naysayers. But uh, I wonder if this is an important part of the conversation that we missed out on. I think we should play before it becomes a sort of stigmatised. <laughs> well, I, th I, th I also think that we had this idea that maybe we would help popularise pickleball in the UK. And, you know, may maybe we missed that boat, which is okay because you're busy being the shadow, whatever you are. Yeah. But now there could be an opportunity for us to get into the pickleball sound mitigation business. Maybe. I still think the sandwich thing is a better answer. <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. Why don't you say... Yes, I will. Now, do, do I have your undivided attention? Ed? I'm also looking at my emails. Actually. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, here we go. So, so uh, you, you know, often you will hear people these days saying things like, I just can't concentrate as well as I used to, or I spend too much time on my phone. And here, here we have living proof of that in Ed, yeah, who, you know, if I yeah. pause for breath, yeah. then it's an opportunity to look at your email. And yeah. we're going to explore whether that is the case, uh, whether it's more nuanced than that, and, and also just attention generally, how to reclaim your attention. With three guests, we have Polly Dalton, who is going to talk to us about the psychology of attention. James Williams, who is a former Google employee, who then wrote a book about the attention economy, which is the idea that in an age of abundant information, our attention is scarce. And then, I'm excited about this, we're talking to Tom Hodgkinson, who is going to talk to us about his original way of resisting all of the demands on his time and attention. Somebody bought me his book, How to Be Idle, in 2004, and uh, I'm a fan. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My reason to be cheerful, Ed, is I went to the newly reopened National Portrait Gallery the other day to see the, uh, the Paul McCartney photo exhibition, and it's great He's unearthed all these photos of Beatlemania from a Beatle point of view. So we're so used to seeing it through the lenses of fans or um, photographers, journalists. But to see it from their point of view, looking out at the madness is just brilliant. And also there's an intimacy to it that uh, you, you see them in a different way because we all behave differently when a friend sticks a camera in our face than we do when a, a photographer sticks a camera in our face. It is a wonderful exhibition and the new renovated National Portrait Gallery in London is looking great as well. So I'll I'll be going back because I know there is a portrait of you in there. There isn't. Well, there is in their archive. I don't know if they've hung it up or not. There isn't a portrait of me there. Yes, there is. It's the Kate Peters one from 2012 where you've got one hand in your pocket. That's part of their collection. Really? Do you know the photo I'm talking about? No, I don't. It's a good one of you, actually. You, you um, look... Less ravaged by the years spent as leader of the opposition. Wow. What have you learned over the years about posing for a photo? Don't eat a bacon sandwich. Right. 
All right, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I was at a reception organised by the National Trust, the RSPB and the World Wildlife Fund to celebrate Wild Isles. Do you know the Wild Isles thing, the, the Attenborough and all of that malarkey? Oh, yes, 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 yeah. I do. I've watched some of that. Anyway, yeah. and a very nice bloke came up to me and he said, I want to thank you, he said, because I was involved in the People's Plan for Nature. Remember the People's Plan for Nature? Yeah, yeah, just the other week, yeah. But And one of the reasons, if not the reason I got involved, I was a listener to your podcast and I heard all about deliberation, citizens' juries and da-da-da-da-da-da. And then... When I got the invitation, I thought, oh, I know about this. I've heard it on Reasons to be Cheerful. This is great. So last week uh, we I know, had, I know, had I know. somebody who's becoming a magistrate based on our podcast. This week, someone who, I know. who joined I know. Uh, a citizen's jury. We're, ch- we're changing the world one step at a time, Jeff. Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start our conversation, I'd like to say that we're joined by Polly Dalton, who is Professor of Cognitive Psychology at Royal Holloway University of London, Polly, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with just a basic question. As a psychologist, you research attention. Tell us a bit more about what that means and what you're looking at. So from my perspective, the way I think about attention is it's our ability to focus on some information in the world around us at the expense of other information. So information that's currently more relevant to us for whatever reason. And particularly within that area, what I look at is a phenomenon that we call attentional capture. So this is a process by which your attention can be drawn away from the task that you're focusing on and towards something else. And so we look at that both using some quite abstract kind of laboratory tasks where we're showing people beeps and playing them flashes and things, but also in real world context. So thinking about how the principles that we uncover might apply to things like designing warning alerts for drivers or or for pilots. Tell us a bit more about what captures attention and what we're drawn to. It's still an area that we're looking at a lot. The science is really active, but it does seem that there are certain types of information that are more likely to draw our attention than others. So, for example, objects that really stand out from the background in some way are very likely to draw attention. So if you think of looking at a tree covered in green leaves and there are a few red fruits, our visual attention is very likely to be drawn towards the red items just because they're, they stand out in that way. They're unique against the background. It's also possible that the research is suggesting that stimuli that we've learned to be important in some way are also likely to draw attention. Other types of material that's likely to be emotional for some reason because of our experience, perhaps emotional faces, for example, threatening images. So there are a lot of types of information that are more likely to draw attention than others. And in principle, why would our phones, technology and advertising be able to effectively capture our attention? I guess it's implicit in what you've just said, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting facet about the way that our attention works. So it's actually really important that we're open to this type of attentional capture. Of course, on the one hand, we need to be able to focus. We're kind of in a very busy world, bombarded with information. And if we don't have the ability to focus our attention to some extent, then we'll be continually distracted by everything that's happening around us. But the flip side of that is that we do need to remain open to having our attention drawn away in order to remain aware of changes that are happening in the world around us. So I guess if people are listening to your podcast, maybe trying to ignore, I don't know, plane noise or something that's going on, which is a potential auditory distraction. 
it's important that they're able to do that to some extent. But if the auditory distraction changes to be something like a fire alarm, then they need to be able to have noticed that. So it's this ability to have our attention captured away from the task at hand is actually really, really important for us because it allows us to stay aware of changes in the environment. And so I think that function, that openness to having our attention drawn away, of course, also leaves us open to having our attention captured by things that maybe aren't so important to us as a fire alarm. So that means we're also liable to having our attention drawn towards ads or non-urgent phone notifications or whatever it might be. And is there anything to say that our ability is changing or is it just that there's more distraction? That's a difficult question. It's a little bit outside my own area of research. One of the things I say that we certainly have access to a lot of information. um, And I think that has massive benefits as well as, you know, potential challenges in the way in which we deal with our ability to access so much information. I think it's quite difficult to measure whether our ability to pay attention would be changing. I think on a general level, I guess I'd say that whenever you want to look at changes like that over time, it can be challenging. Because there's no baseline. That's one thing. And also because, yeah, I guess you don't have the kind of experimental control that you would typically have in a lab experiment. So, you know, multiple things are likely to have been changing at the same time. It can be quite difficult to isolate causes when you're looking for those kind of changes over time. Talk to us a little bit about what the experiments you do or what's the research you do, Polly. When we're looking at these issues in the lab, we're often interested in this balance between what types of stimuli or under what circumstances do people have their attention drawn away from a task and in what circumstances do they actually remain focused on the task. And so quite a lot of our recent research has been looking at this phenomenon where actually people can miss quite big and important changes in the environment if they're focused on another task. Is this like the gorilla walking onto the basketball court? Yeah, that's it. I I was trying not to mention it in case I didn't want to spoil it for anybody, but we developed an auditory version of, of that effect to show that you can get the similar effect in hearing. You could see that as a downside of actually remaining focused on a task. So if it's important for you to notice a gorilla walking through your environment, but you've actually stayed so focused on, on, on the basketball counting task that you fail to notice it, you could conceptualise that as actually missing something that you might have wanted to detect, especially if it's a gorilla. What's the auditory equivalent of it? So we have people listening to a kind of complicated auditory scene. We use binaural recording to make sure that it sounds kind of three-dimensional to them. And then we ask them to focus on one aspect of the scene. So in this particular case, we asked them to focus on the women's conversation and ignore the men's conversation. And then we had a male voice kind of walking through the scene saying, I'm a gorilla, I'm a gorilla, over and over again. Oh, wow. 70% of people failed to notice him. So it was a really profound effect. We were shocked, actually. I didn't think it would work. Wow. Yeah, it's a really strong attentional effect. It shows that people in that case are doing a really good job of focusing on the task that we asked them to, which was listening to the women's voices. That's directed focus. Yeah. And what do you think the implications are for the so-called attention economy then of all of this? I think it takes mental effort for us to control our attention in the face of multiple distractions. Yeah. Eventually, I think people can find that to be tiring. And of course, you know, we don't always manage to maintain that focus, then that can impact on the task that we're trying to achieve. But one of the things I would say is that I think 
a lot of the information that we're exposed to now, the notifications and the alerts, they are quite customizable. So I think this is a real advantage, actually, of a lot of this information being more digital, is that in many cases, we have a level of control and sort of personalization over the way in which our devices are seeking to attract our attention. So we can, you know, set it to do not disturb. That's one of the areas in which I see an upside, actually, is the fact that we probably increasingly are being given a reasonable amount of control over the way in which our attention is being sought. And to some extent, the the conversation around the attention economy then is how loud people are shouting, I am a gorilla. Yeah, I think that's right. So that gets back to this idea of which types of information are more likely to capture our attention than others. And so if you just make that gorilla really loud, (laughs) then everybody is going to notice it. So for example, in the visual domain, things that flash on and off are really difficult for us to ignore. From your perspective, is distraction the opposite of attention? I would call it a kind of inherent part of the way in which we control our attention. This balance between needing to be able to focus on the relevant information, but on the other hand, having our attention drawn to unexpected changes in the environment. And so in many cases, when we have our attention drawn in that way, it feels like distraction because it's actually our attention has been drawn to something that we're not interested in. But no one says that they've been distracted by their own car alarm. It's an inherent part of the way that we function, really. And is there a psychological cost to too much distraction? So I I remember years and years ago going to Marrakesh for the first time and feeling exhausted after a day in the souk from all the people trying to uh, get me to come into different market stores and sell me things. And then being back in London and noticing the amount of space that was covered in advertising. And that made me wonder if that was exhausting me, but just in in a more insidious way. It does take effort in order to maintain our focus in the face of distractions. So even if it's just about the mental effort that it takes to refocus yourself back on the task that you wanted to do, having had your attention drawn away, people can experience that as a a tiring and exhausting process. I remember hearing the idea that a really good state for your brain to get into, and I guess this plays into mindfulness is that thing where you're just sitting staring and then all of a sudden you're a million miles away and you find yourself snap out and think oh where was I that 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 state is really good for ideas and mental well-being Mm. yeah there's some interesting work I don't know whether it slightly gets at that from Nilly Levy and her colleagues who have found that we process distractors less if we're involved with a more demanding task So, and I think for me, that speaks a bit to this issue of feeling like you get absorbed in a task that is a really good level of being interesting and demanding, and that that can then reduce your amount of processing of potential distractors around you. Yeah. But at the end, Polly, let's give us a reason to be cheerful about your research, what it shows. I mean, the reason I study this is because I think this ability that we have to, on the one hand, focus on what we need to, but on the other hand, stay open to noticing important changes in the environment. I think it's miraculous and really fascinating. And so I think it's something that we are doing all the time. We're completely, most of us, most times taking it for granted. But actually, what we're doing there is something really quite remarkable, I think, is sort of maintaining a level of focus 
but without losing track of the environment around us as well. Pretty good, eh, Jeff? Yeah. Well, Polly Dalton, it's been fantastically interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With us now, we have technology ethicist at the Oxford Internet Institute and author of Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy, James Williams. Hello. Hello. And uh, I should mention that you are joining us in the early hours <laughs> of the 5th of July. So th th there is a chance, however slight, that we might hear fireworks in the background. There is. Yeah, that's right. They've just stopped a few minutes ago. So if you do hear explosions, don't, don't worry. <laughs> Tell me, first of all, about the job title Tech Ethicist. Is, uh, is that a title of your own invention? I guess it's just a way I talk about the broad category of things that I'm involved in. Broadly speaking, how do we design create, deploy technologies that are you know, reasonable, aligned with human interests, that promote well-being, this kind of thing. And, and your background, you worked at Google for over a decade. Was it that experience that alerted you to the issue of ethics in tech? I started at Google in 2005, kind of got to see this industry really kind of rocket ship up and come to maturity. The thing I thought was interesting about when I started at Google was there was this narrative about reforming advertising and changing it to be something that isn't just distracting to us, isn't just trying to take our attention, but it's actually, you know, aligned with our, our intentions, our goals, you know, as the, the industry matured and a lot of these pre-internet notions were just reapplied in, in kind of the digital space. What I saw was just, you know, this kind of monster kind of transmogrifying before all of us of this, this infrastructure of global persuasion, if not manipulation of competing for people's attention instead of competing to help people do things they want to do. A system that wasn't really on our side, so to speak. So that's kind of what I, when I started to really think about these issues of, of attention, of persuasion, ethics. Was it a gradual dawning realization that made you sort of leave Google? Or was it a sort of light bulb moment? I think there were both. So I think there are these kind of moments where you see cracks and then light starts coming through. 
I, I think there was one moment where, where the big epiphany, there was a series of epiphanies, but the big one I think was just looking at numbers on this, this dashboard, you know, millions of clicks uh, as a metric, which you know, it's a kind of metric that all kinds of platforms and designers use. And just realizing that those were, that's, you know, millions of people did this thing that they would not have otherwise done if we didn't design this this particular way. And I think just realizing this the scope and the scale of what was happening and and the persuasive power that existed then and th- that this was something kind of new historically like you know never in history have been able to like persuade people at this scale in that way now james the attention economy is often held up as the full guy for why we feel like we can't concentrate anymore C- can you explain what the attention economy is and and whether that is indeed the case that it's potentially doing this to us the broad way to understand the attention economy is that it's this environment of media, of technologies that um, competes for our attention, competes for our time, competes to persuade us to think or do certain things as its primary goal. Um, and there's like a, there's a general sense in which, you know, any social interaction is like in a, an economy of attention. You know, humans need attention. We want attention for many good reasons. But when I talk about attention economy, which has been a term that's been around for a while, it's it's essentially like the way in which media systems are are designed to fundamentally compete for our attention as the main goal. And what is it potentially doing to us? One of the things I wanted to do in, in my book is really kind of deepen the sense of what is at stake in the question of attention. So you know the way that kind of the the harms the externalities if you will of the attention economy are normally talked about it, it's in terms of distraction kind of these momentary deviations from what we want to do i wanted to go make a pot of coffee but i you know candy crush gave me a notification this kind of thing yeah what i was trying to do with the book was it was really deep in the sense of what counts as attention so i think you know there's a long tradition in human history about like attention being like in a really real sense you know what we are when our attention is manipulated, it's like, in some sense, the core part of us that's being manipulated and, and shaped and nudged. If our media systems are kind of this lens through which we we look at everything in the world, whether that's news or entertainment or our family relationships, and then you have a certain set of biases in those systems towards certain information over others, essentially shaping the way that we see the world. And then we start to see that that kind of those dynamics appear in all these different parts of our lives. So, you know, social media site will start to prioritize outrage over maybe something that is awe-inspiring, for instance. We'll start to sort of compare ourselves with the most you know successful people in the world, not just, you know, like might have been 100 years ago, the most successful people in our town or something. And so our, our relative self-worth will be, you know, go way down. Is this relate back to what Marshall McLuhan said, I think, which is the medium is the message? Yeah, absolutely. It's this idea that, you know, much more than the content of of the medium, it's it's the the way in which a given medium sort of opens certain doors of possibility and closes others. And then when the way in which we kind of internalize those dynamics, that is the, the much deeper thing. And, and is it that playing Candy Crush isn't necessarily any better or worse than going into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee, but it's <laughs> the way in which our attention is being commodified and manipulated that you identify as the problem? Yeah, I think I mean, there are several levels of the problem, but I think it, fundamentally it, it's kind of an issue of, of autonomy, of, of freedom. Is the system on our side? Is it, is it designed to help us do what we want to do, whether that's making a cup of coffee or playing Candy Crush? Or is it, is it actually undermining our ability to be 
autonomous, not just to kind of do the stuff we want to do, but, you know, over time to live the life we want to live. And then at a deeper level, reflect on the things we actually want to do and be in Harry Frankfurt's phrase, you know, to want what we want to want. And so I think at the deepest level, it's those those opportunities for reflection, for for kind of figuring out who we are, that print media, these kind of slower forms of media that allow for a certain kind of cognitive complexity and nuance. One way to understand the challenge is how do we retain the useful elements of those kinds of exercises and those kinds of those actions in, in this new media ecosystem that's all about instantaneity, that's all about exploiting our psychology just for for some somebody else's interests and not necessarily our own. And just to sort of be devil's advocate for a minute, this is obviously different from the novel, TV, etc. We're in a categorically different position in terms of the impact. Absolutely. One is obviously the scale, like the kind of the global scale, you know, the way in which then power can be centralized in the hands of just a few people, being able to change a design element on a social media platform and shape what billions of people are thinking. I think it's a kind of power we don't even really have a name for yet in English. The way in which, you know, like TV ads, you know, could could be persuasive to a degree, you know, have little jingles that you remember years later. But the, the kind of just the scientific way in which persuasive technology is being deployed now is something far beyond there's been in the past. There's something called neuromarketing that exists where they'll put people in MRI, you know, fMRI machines and see what's happening to their brains in response to different advertisements. So there's a whole kind of science behind all the persuasion. And then the, I guess another enormous one is just the ubiquity of it. You know, we took, we carried this little thing in our pocket that gives us access to, you know, the most interesting things in the world, most interesting people in the world instantly. I don't think there's any kind of historical comparison. So certainly there's been persuasion, there's been design of a similar nature in the past, but I mean, I think if it's similar to kind of the difference between like a rain shower and a, a hurricane, the scale and the the intensity of it, it becomes not just like quantitatively, but qualitatively different. What is the evidence to say that it's worse? This is where I think it's, there's a really interesting kind of set of questions. At the broad level, this is kind of an overall, this is like a normative question. Should we be in the driver's seat of our lives or should we have you know things coming into our lives that are designed to undermine that? And so to me, if you just look at the the dashboards, for instance, of, of many of these companies, like where, where there's sort of just a clear break between, you know, what's said in the marketing messages of what they're trying to do and then what is actually being measured and optimized for. Like, to me, that's the most compelling evidence of all. Here's the actual goal to maximize the amount of time people spend with something or the number of times they click on something or this kind of thing. And those aren't actually anybody's goals who's using the system. It's good to have more evidence. It's always good, but but we already know that this stuff really isn't designed to be on people's side most of the time. And so that, to me, that's the starting point for a lot of this. I sort of intuitively agree with you because it's true at a number of levels, isn't it? It encourages outrage, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, or sort of provoking outrage. That's one level. And there's another level, which it's, I can just tell from myself, is that your ability to be distracted when you're having a conversation with a family member or when you're doing something that's not holding your attention for every moment, you've got a, a sort of cookie jar there waiting to distract you, basically. I mean, I know I'm saying something very obvious, but that, I mean, doesn't that feel right, Jeff? Uh, not right, but doesn't that feel correct? I think your family members need to up their game conversationally. Oh, don't you think that's true, Jeff? The manipulation is what is very interesting. To me, the, the the idea of the autonomy that James is talking about feels like the scariest part of it. I do wonder about 
you know, to what sense our lives are autonomous without going too big. But that's um, that's a little bit whataboutism, isn't it? Um, it's you know, saying, oh, well, we've already lost lost autonomy over these parts of our lives to do with work and the economic system. So uh, what, do, what does it matter if distraction goes as well, which, you know, I, I don't think is a good argument. What changes have you made personally, James? Obviously, your, your, your work and a lot of your thought goes into this, but personally, how have you changed your life in the light of the thinking you've done on the attention economy? I mean, I have two kids now since I wrote the book, so that's changed sort of the domestic attention economy of my life in some ways. But I think it's also made me you know, realize there's really what's at stake. I don't use social media really at all, like Twitter, Facebook, I don't really use, but I'll still use other things like Reddit sometimes or, you know, messaging apps. But it's a much bigger challenge than I had ever kind of assumed at the beginning of all this. What are the systemic answers to this? Mm. Because in a way, you know, we can all try our best individually, but the whole point of this is it's quite addictive and hard to resist. I guess it just depends on how we frame the nature of the problem. I mean, to the extent that it's a design problem, there are, there are certain design reforms that can be put in place um, to the extent that it's a problem with business models, the capitalization of attention, that there can be rules around you know business models that can be voluntarily adopted, new kinds of non-attention economic business models that can be developed. Well, that's, I think, proven a challenge in the last several years to kind of find good ones. Um, or you know, can, that can be a policy thing too. And then I think there's a question of if the problem is we have you know, a certain set of people who have a, a kind of power over the shape of our attention, our experiences, our lives, is there a way that we can then have a say in the design of these systems that's commensurate with the importance of it? So is there some new kind of collective action that, that should exist, um, whether that comes out of, you know, say, the free open source software kind of side of things, or if it's about saying once you get to become a platform, you have to become a benefit corp or a co-op and everybody has to have a stake in the company. There's a lot of potential in just kind of thinking of, you know, think of it if we were to give people a say in the design of the stuff that's commensurate with the power it has over them, what would that look like? Well, look, James, it is really enlightening to speak to you and if not entirely optimistic, but thank <laughs> you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I can add one thing that does make me optimistic. Yes, please do. As I say at the end of the book, I think it is very, very early in the development of, of digital technology. To go from a stone hand axe to a stone hand axe with a handle on it took 1.7 million years. And the web, at least when I wrote the book, it was only 10,000 days old. That's interesting. It's still very early days. And there's, I think, still time to to write the ship in a lot of ways. So, So that's one thing that gives me optimism. We should certainly check back in with you in one million seven hundred two thousand and twenty-three. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll almost have it figured out by that point. <laughs> James, that's really really good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, appreciate it. And now to conclude our conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Tom Hodgkinson, who is editor of the Idler magazine and author of How to Be Idle. Tom, how did you get into this line of work of being a professional idler? Thanks for asking it. <laughs> it's it's been a wonderful thirty years. You know that's when we uh, produced issue one of the Idler. But the original idea came to me when I was working on actually the Sunday Mirror magazine as a as a junior journalist many many years ago in, in the early nineties, and I just didn't like working, but I liked being creative. And I read some essays by Dr. Johnson, which were published in the seventeen fifties. It turns out he was what he called an idler as well. What he meant actually was that, you know, he, he was actually very productive, but the periods of work were very short and intense. 
And they were preceded by long periods of doing nothing, idling, thinking, pondering, praying, all those sort of things that I think actually are very important to life and, and to work. I think you're still slightly describing Jeff apart from the praying, don't you think, Jeff? <laughs> yes. Very much so. And I don't like the way that the, there is a value judgment um, often inherent in the word idle. Has, has that always been the case, Tom? It has always been the case, I think. But we're lucky in English. We have two words. We have idle and lazy. And, you know, I, I thought the word idler actually had something a bit more positive in it than the word lazy. It evokes a riverbank. It evokes a riverbank. It evokes something like a kind of uh, romantic poet rambling. There are other magazines at the time that started in you know this early period of grub street the rambler the observer the spectator and there was this idea that you could sort of wander around uh, the city or the countryside taking down your observations and that could be a form of work and i thought hmm that sounds good explains us why idling could be perhaps the best tool at our disposal to to resist the ever-increasing demands on time and attention well we're fighting now against silicon valley and i think idlers have always had some sort of enemy The most recent was before that, before the Silicon Valley revolution, really, was the Industrial Revolution. The working day became ridiculously long in the sort of early to mid-19th century. People had been working ridiculously long hours, children, women, every day, to to sort of power the Industrial Revolution and and power the empire. But now we've got this new foe, really, which is Silicon Valley, which is slightly different. It's a little bit more kind of Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. We like social media. We're on social media. We like the phone. Yet we also complain about them. And we also complain, I think, about the Silicon Valley work ethic. So people like Elon Musk claim to work sort of 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. And idling is an act of resistance to that. It's almost a sort of political statement because you're saying, actually, I don't want to get sucked up into this world where actually most of us are working for the, not to get too Marxist about it, but for the owners of capital. And so, you know, going on a strike, the shorter working day, freelance working, starting your own business, being a musician, doing something creative in your life. These are all ways of grabbing back some power for the individual, you know, away from the big, big companies, the the big corporations. If I sit on the lavatory looking at TikTok for 20 minutes, am I idling or does, <laughs> does that not uh, fit your description? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too sort of puritanical about it because I, as an idler, actually, I think I've got a kind of uh, d- deep hatred of these things like TikTok. But obviously, like, you know, wasting time is a, is a form of idling. And so I wouldn't want to sort of judge someone about that. This is a very hard question to answer, but I mean, you've probably been asked it many times over the years. I mean, what is in the bucket of idleness and what isn't? No, I think that's a very good question. Is it in the eye of the beholder? It's in the eye of the beholder. It's up to each individual. I mean, sometimes we get readers saying, um, OK, Tom, well, I followed your advice. I'm now learning the ukulele and I've cut my working hours and so on and so forth. It's not really a bucket list, you know, 50 things you must do to be an idler. In fact, we were thinking of doing a book, 50 things you must not do. That's up to each individual person. The things that we've isolated are merrymaking. It's a really important part of it, I think, whatever form that takes. Philosophizing, carving out some time just to sort of do nothing, to think, to stare at a wall, to be with friends. They're very simple things. And also, I think this might sound a little puritanical, but a little bit of frugality, because um, if you can get your finances under control, then i.e. not be in debt, that gives you actually quite a lot of sort of power and autonomy in everyday life, I think. So so in some ways, idling is is quite anti-capitalistic. It is, yeah. And it's I suppose it's anarchistic, if you like. One of my favourite political philosophers was called Prince Kropotkin. He was the sort of lefty anarchist in the 19th century. And 
you know, he's a big influence on people like Oscar Wilde at the time. And you wouldn't exactly call them, you know, left wing in the sense of an, an enormous state telling people what to do. And they're certainly not right wing because they believed in mutual aid and people looking after each other. The readers of the magazine come from all sort of political backgrounds as left wing readers, right wing readers. I mean, I think perhaps the idler would like to sort of unite what's best about both of them and the emphasis on compassion that comes from the left, uh, but also the emphasis on individual agency, which comes from the right. But yeah, I would say it's anti-capitalist insofar as it's, you know, pro-freedom from the sort of grip of the consumerist system. Is there an argument that when we find ourselves flitting from one thing or or another and and having a a tension pulled, that, that, that the answer actually is serious concentration rather than doing nothing? I think that's a really good point. Jeff, because it goes back to what I was saying about Dr. Johnson. He was able to concentrate intensely and really focus on the task at hand. And he wrote his freelance journalism at amazing speed. It was like momentum, you know, the, the sort of longer a, a heavy ball pushed up a hill, you know, so the heavier the ball and the steeper the hill, the faster it goes down the other side. So there's this sort of, sort of build up of momentum. And actually, I think in idling, efficiency is a good word. It's the inefficient person who uh, lingers late in the office and who wants to sort of look busy. Is, is it compatible with the sort of hours we um, typically work these days? Well, I was going to ask that too. I mean, isn't it isn't part of the problem that you talked about the industrial revolution, but you know, lots of people have to have two jobs in order to make ends meet. I think we've seen in the last decade or so a rise in average working hours, which is very, very unusual. I, personally, I think that a, a progressive society should be gradually working towards a, a shorter working week. So this isn't an original idea. I mean, you get this in Maynard Keynes, you know, Bertrand Russell, people like that. In the 30s, they were saying, why are we working so hard? We're so clever. <laughs> There's a four-day week movement growing right now. Let me ask you a question about your own practices, Tom. Is producing the idler compatible with being idle, or is it bloody hard work which <laughs> stops you having time to be idle. It's a mix set, isn't it? I mean, I, I think anyone who does anything sort of vaguely creative, it, there's work involved. I think you sort of get better at it the more you do it, something that I've chosen to do. So I don't see it exactly as work. But yeah, I'm, I'm always accused of working too hard and being hypocritical about my own philosophy. <laughs> there's no ways in which the principles of idleness underpin the magazine, not in terms of its, its content, which we know, but in terms of its production. You're not saying, well, maybe it'll come out on December the 12th, but it might be out on January the 6th. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we did do that, Jeff, in the uh, in the 90s. It was, it, it was what you call a tri-quarterly magazine, which is... You try to come out quarterly, but you generally manage three a year. <laughs> and uh, things like That's watching, really funny. <laughs> things like watching Wimbledon held us up. But no, I, I you know we've got subscribers. Um, they, they pay in advance for their six issues. I don't think I can really say actually we can't, couldn't be bothered to sing your magazine this month. I mean, there is a truth here, isn't there? Which is there is huge privilege attached to having the time and well and money, I guess, to be idle. Yeah, this is this is a problem I've had to face almost since day one because there's this phrase "idle rich," isn't there? Well, it's all right for the you know the, the aristocrats, lucky them, so they can sort of sit around doing nothing. I mean, actually, I think it's the good thing about idling when you think it through. It, it's it's free. It's open to everybody, and you know we're not running away from the fact that let's take an example. You know, uh, gig economy workers are sort of you know are being exploited by this system. So. As I said, there's a sort of political element to it. But I think on an individual level, actually, everyone can, with a bit of thought, everyone can find a little bit more time just to do nothing in their lives. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to 
sit on a park bench and stare at the sky. So it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's not about having a large income. And then the other thing is that actually a lot of these rich people are incredibly busy. It's like a sort of status symbol to say, I'm super busy. I'm just so busy. You know, oh, my God, it's just nonstop. Leave us with a piece of advice for all of us aspiring idlers. One of the things I would say is like, you know, make sure you take a lunch break. Get up a little bit later. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Sleep is really important. And actually, the first step, I think, is is a mental one, which is to remove the guilt. Because a lot of readers write in and say, look, you know, I'd love to be more idle. It's obviously a good idea. It's good for my health. It's good for my work, actually. It's good for my relationships, so on and so forth, family. But I feel guilty. I feel guilty not working. And I'll say, well, that's because of your conditioning. We're sort of encouraged to feel guilty. And we have been encouraged to feel guilty by the sort of system, if you like, since the Industrial Revolution. There are societies around the world now who don't feel guilty at all about not working. So step one is understand that the guilt has to be banished first. Are you sold, Ed? Because I, I don't need selling on idleness, but I think perhaps <laughs> you, you do a little. I actually think Tom has sort of put his, his finger on the, on the issue, which is the guilt thing. I don't quite know where the guilt thing comes from. You know, it's just societal, that, isn't it? Yeah, societal, parental, the whole bunch of things. So you're going to let it go then? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to aspire to do so. Tom Hodgkinson, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Jeff. It's really nice of you to listen to my prattlings. Well, what did you think? Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Some of the stuff I went into it thinking, I don't think I've changed that much on. Other stuff has given me more food for thought. I just don't necessarily think that staring at TikTok is any worse than staring out of a window. And, you know, in some ways, I think it's it's better. I, I, I learn more. I guess the thing that's made me think about the most is the, the tactics that companies use to capture and, and, and keep our attention and just how few companies really dominate a Google, Meta, TikTok. It reminds me a little bit of food companies using ingredients that they know are addictive, but not necessarily very good for us. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good parallel. You know, it's good for their bottom line. That's a good parallel. As ever, when we touch on issues with tech, I think politics is so far behind. Digital, yeah. the, the thinking, the understanding of it, it feels so far behind. The other thing we didn't touch on, and this was because none of our guests really had an expertise in this, but um, you, you will sometimes read articles where they link the rise of the attention economy with the increase in ADHD diagnoses. And, I, you know, I don't buy into that at all. I think that's like confusing um, right. correlation and causation because, you know, that that's all about us understanding yeah. neurodiversity better. And I think that's maybe like a missing part of this conversation is, you know, brains aren't uniform and attention isn't uniform. And people with ADHD, for example, have, have an ability to also hyper-focus. I wonder if the variation in, in, in brains will become important in the way that we think about this. Well, look, that's a really interesting analysis. I'll tell you one thing that occurs to me is there's a book called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr, which was actually published 12 years ago originally, and he was writing about how the it's, it's subtitle is How the Internet is Changing the Way We Think, Read and Remember. He's got this thing, I think I'm right in saying, but I, I have, I've been too distracted to read the book. But I th he had this thing, as I understand it, about deep reading. And deep reading is getting sort of lost in a book, which then isn't about what you read in the book, but it's about the thoughts it prompts and all of that. And 
I have this conversation with Justine quite a lot. I mean, I think deep reading when you've got a phone and all of that, it's much harder to do because there's always a sort of more instant gratification distraction. I completely agree with that. I also think before we had these distractions, it's not like everybody was living lives of um, betterment and intellectual nourishment. No, okay. Yeah, well, look, I think you're right. That's a cautionary tale is, is, is right. And then obviously... The idler is just up your street, really, isn't it? I love it. Yeah, yeah. Why Why should you feel guilty? I mean, to be honest, you should be the co-editor of The Idler, really. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work, though. That is a downside for you. I think that idler stuff's quite compatible with the sort of UBI vision of things, where the value of a life isn't about its economic productivity, necessarily. It's a life well lived. And, and like following your nose and following your passions and interests is is idling, really, isn't it? Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. We are. Let me tell you something about next week's episode. It will be the first time for, I don't know how long, where I'll actually be able to see you properly. Because? After months of cataract operations and eye tests, finally I will have prescription glasses that work for me everything's settled down but the reason I mention this is when I was having my eyes tested I asked the optician a question that I think we've all wanted to know the answer to which is should you strain yourself to read the smallest possible line or is that unhelpful when they're generating your prescription and what's the answer to that they say you should it's good to know what your eyes are capable of but I I always feel like I'm showing off or overreaching (laughs) if I try and read that tiny line of text don't you Jeff Lloyd he overreached at the opticians (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just typical braggadocio. Tried to read the smallest line at the opticians. That's a pretty harsh criticism that you wouldn't want leveled at you in today's age. Shall we thank our guesties? Yes. I'd like to thank Polly Dalton, James Williams and Tom Hodgkinson. I'd like to thank all our guests, but James also dialed in at like very late hour, didn't he? From the West yes. Coast of the United States. Yes, uh, he gets extra marks for effort. Extra marks. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff 2020 Lloyd. (laughs) And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 